Welcome to Behavior Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Given the strange and turbulent times that we are living through, Kurt and I decided to reach out to some of our favorite behavioral science researchers and practitioners to get their take on the novel coronavirus pandemic that is shaking the world. These special edition episodes will explore a variety of different aspects of the crisis and our response to each of those aspects through a behavioral lens. We know that you may feel overwhelmed by the crisis already. It seems every news story, every social media thread, every phone conversation that we have is focused on some aspect of the pandemic right now. While the news and updated information are essential, we're going to take a different tact. We want to try to understand the science behind our reactions and our behaviors and how science can help us cope and move beyond the current crisis. In each episode, we talk with a different behavioral science expert and get their best thinking on an aspect of the crisis. So sit back, take a deep breath, and listen to our special series on behavioral science and the coronavirus pandemic. Gretchen Chapman has been a professor in social and decision sciences since 2017. Prior to joining the faculty at CMU, Dr. Chapman was a distinguished professor of psychology at Rutgers University. She's the author of more than 100 journal articles and the recipient of 20 years of continuous external funding. Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, Gretchen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm pleased to be here. We are really glad that you're joining us because the work that you're doing or have done is really relevant to us. And we would love to start by having you telling, tell us a little bit about the psychology of vaccination. I'd be happy to tell you about that. I've been interested in vaccination for many years because it's a prevalent preventive behavior that almost everyone has access to. Uh, I've done a lot of thinking, especially about the flu shot, because that comes up every year. Mm -hmm. And I recently was able to work with a group of collaborators on a big review paper on what we know about the psychology of, of vaccination. So I can give you a little thumbnail summary of what we said in that paper. We would love that. Thank you. Uh, so we thought about three different categories of factors that affect vaccine decision-making. And the first one we, we called uh, beliefs and feelings. So what do people believe about the risks of infectious disease and the risks of the vaccine? And what kind of emotions like anxiety or worry do they have about the vaccine or about the infectious disease? And you would think that there would be a very logical relationship where people who perceive a higher risk would be more likely to get vaccinated. And in a correlational sense, that's true. People who get vaccinated say they perceive a higher risk if they didn't get vaccinated than people who don't. Um, but it doesn't work quite so logically when you think about intervening, like giving people informative messages to tell them that vaccines are safe or effective, um, that those vaccine, that those messages would change beliefs and then the changed beliefs would result in changed behavior. There's actually a, a rather checkered track record on those kind of studies. Uh, I think for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's not that easy to change entrenched beliefs just with some simple message. And the second is what we believe is only part of what guides our behavior. So even if you've changed people's beliefs successfully, you're not necessarily going to change their behavior. Mm. Uh, so our conclusion from that paper is that trying to change people's beliefs and feelings is may not be the most effective way to increase vaccination uptake. There might be other other strategies that work better. 
That's a that's a key observation. That that's really great. That's that, I'm, that. So thank you for sharing that. So what what else? What else did you uncover? Uh, so the second category we looked at was social factors. So these would include social norms, you know, following what other people are doing, and also the social dynamics of vaccination. That by me getting vaccinated, I can protect the people around me because now I I can't be a carrier. Mm. Uh, and there's a, a little bit of evidence, but not very strong that those pro-social motives for vaccination are actually effective as an intervention strategy. There's a lot of evidence in social psychology generally about the importance of social norms and social norms messages driving behavior. I know you've talked about that on this podcast in previous episodes. Um, very little of that work has, has happened in the context of vaccination. Hmm. So we think that social norms are a very viable and hopeful path to work on going forward, but we don't currently have a lot of evidence that they work specifically with vaccination. Oh, interesting. Okay. Okay, great. And, and what was what was your third observation? So yeah, our third category is the one where there, there's the bulk of the evidence. And we called that intervening on behavior directly, by which we mean we're just going to try to get people to vaccinate uh, without going to the trouble, so to speak, of trying to change their beliefs and feelings. So if we can make vaccination the easy path, that's probably not going to work for people who are very strongly opposed to vaccination, but for sort of people on the fence who are reasonably positively disposed to it, but it's not their most important priority. If you can make it really easy to get vaccinated, uh, then they're more likely to. So some examples of that would be just reminders, uh, like the HPV vaccination is a two vaccine sequence. So reminding people when it's time to come get their second dose um, or recommendations. So we know that physician recommendations are very highly correlated with health behavior. And there's, there are particular ways in which physicians can give recommendations that are uh, especially effective um, a so-called presumptive recommendation where the physician says, you know, your child is 12 and so he's eligible for the HPV vaccine and we'll be giving that at the end of today's appointment, sort of communicating this is standard practice. Uh, this is what the, the quality care that we provide to everyone. And of course, when, if the family has questions and concerns, the physician uh, addresses those. But doesn't sort of pose it as a kind of optional, this isn't necessarily the best thing kind of message. Mm. Um, a similar technique is to use the power of defaults. So to pre-schedule people for appointments that they can cancel if they don't want them rather than make, putting the onus on them to schedule an appointment. So someone who has a pre-scheduled appointment is more likely to show up to get vaccinated than uh, someone who doesn't have that. Uh, and then there are stronger techniques that can be used when they're warranted, like uh, incentives for vaccination or penalties if you don't get vaccinated or requirements, like many hospitals require their employees to be vaccinated or they can't come to work. Um, so there is evidence that those work. They're maybe too strong-handed for every situation, but in some situations it might be important to, to use those techniques. Do you see a difference in how people respond to vaccinations for themselves as adults versus how they're viewing vaccinations for their children? Is there any evidence or research that you've seen about differences in, in perceptions? 
Yeah, that's an interesting question, and it can be difficult to study because most childhood vaccines are given to young kids who don't have any say in the matter, and you can't actually ask them yeah. how they're thinking. Um, I did do a, a study a number of years ago with my colleague, Allison Galvani, on HPV vaccination. So we had teenagers fill out the questionnaire and then also their parents. So we had like both parts of the decision-making dyad. Um, and there was pretty close agreement with how the teenagers and the parents were thinking about the vaccine, but the, the parents were kind of like one step ahead from the teens in terms of being more in favor of vaccination and um, more concerned about cancer prevention. I'm interested in the standard practice, this presumptive recommendation. I, we've talked to, uh, I remember talking to Victoria Schaefer at the University of Missouri about this, and she said that uh, that presumptive kinds of recommendations are more common in Europe uh, than they are in, in the United States uh, in, in general, and that, that Europeans tend to be more willing to say, oh, if the doctor is recommending this, then of course I'm just going to say yes. Uh, does you know, what, I guess, do you have any thoughts about that? Or does your research speak to any kind of cultural differences that might exist? Oh, that, that's it. I didn't know about that Europe-US difference. Um, I worked with a doctoral student a few years ago, Berta Lehman, who was working on these default appointments in European hospitals in uh, Germany and the Netherlands. And she did find that same default effect. Uh, but she also did some literature review, which showed that flu vaccination among health professionals in Germany, the Netherlands, and Belgium was surprisingly low, lower than the U.S. So I don't, I don't have a complete story about that difference, but it, it does, it seems, I don't know, it's a bit paradoxical if European physicians are less likely to get the flu shot themselves, but also more likely to give these presumptive recommendations. Many generalities across different European countries and across different vaccines. So, you know, well, and, it, and, and it may be required, you know, differences in the requirements that the, the health providing uh, institution that they're working for has, right? So within the United States, it may be more relevant that doctors need to get those vaccinations in order yeah, to Yeah, I think those kind of workplace mandates are more common in the U.S. than in Europe. Yeah, yeah. So very interesting on that. So so just in general, before we start getting into some of the coronavirus and, and, and other factors that come into this, most people in the United States don't get the influenza vaccine generally year after year. Is that correct? Is that a, is that the right assumption or do most people do? I mean, uh, I mean the, the overall uptake is something around a third. So it's pretty okay. Um, it does vary with age and other demographic groups. Um, individual people tend to be consistent from year to year. So if you okay. got the flu shot the last two years, you're much more likely to get the flu shot this year than someone who didn't get the last two years. Yeah. Uh, so over time, Right. I, I remember growing up in the in the 70s and 80s, and it just felt like that's what you did. And then there seemed to be a lot of backlash that came out uh, against vaccinations, at least in the media, uh, from some of the different pieces. And it felt like maybe m many people didn't. I don't know if you've seen a change in vaccination rates or if you have any information on that across time. And has it been increasing over the past couple of years or has it stayed flat from from what you know? Vaccination rates have been very steady 
Okay. Uh, so even the, the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, which is the one where a lot of the anti-vaccination activism is, is around, those vaccination rates have remained steady for the last couple of decades. Uh, so, for example, the measles outbreak that we had of over a thousand cases, what was that, a year and a half ago? Mm -hmm. uh, to my knowledge, that was not associated with a drop in vaccination that year. That was just sort of bad luck about uh, international visitors coming to particular neighborhoods that happened to have low vaccination rates, and so it, it took off. Um, so certainly anti-vaccination sentiment is something to be concerned about and be continually uh, working on, but to my knowledge, it's not causing downward shifts or fluctuations in the vaccination rates. Okay. Is anti-vaccination sentiment uh, on the increase or is that also about flat? Uh, I, I don't know of any evidence that it's on the increase. I mean, I have talked to individual providers who say that they're experiencing more and more of it, but I don't, I don't know that they just be idiosyncratic to their practice. Yeah. So I, I want to take this to the next step of looking now with with what's going on today with with the coronavirus and COVID nineteen and the different pieces. And one of the things that you said at the beginning in in the, the research that you had done this right is is beliefs and feelings have an impact, but it's hard to message to change those mm -hmm. with the increase. And I'm asking you to have a crystal ball here, which I know is always <laughs> an interesting piece. But looking at how people are viewing the coronavirus and, and the impact. Do, do you foresee potentially having a positive impact on vaccination rates moving forward across all of the different types of vaccinations? Or, or is it just going to be more status quo? And yes, maybe for coronavirus, we'll, we'll get that vaccination because it's so prominent and the fear factor is there and, and everything. But for just normal flu, people may not have that same idea. I don't know if you can look into your crystal ball and predict, but just some thoughts that you might have on that. That is a really interesting question. It does seem like we have, we're in a perfect situation where people ought to be very enthusiastic about a COVID vaccine when it becomes available. So let's imagine we have a really great uptake for that vaccine. Will, will there be spillover yeah. uh, to enhance other vaccines? I, th I think I would hazard that, that, yes, that that could happen. That certainly we know that people's behavior tends to be consistent from one situation to another for a whole host of reasons. But if getting the COVID vaccine signals to yourself that you're a pro-vaccination person or demonstrates to yourself that the needle doesn't really hurt as much as you expected or kind of break down, breaks down some of the barriers of not really knowing where and how to get vaccinated. Those kind of things could transfer to other vaccines. Um, and then, of course, there are more structural ways that the healthcare system could do that for us. Like suppose the COVID vaccine gets bundled with the flu vaccine. Yeah, that it's like it's one in the same, um, right? Then enthusiasm for protection against COVID would quite naturally extend to increased protection against the flu. I yeah. mean, I, I don't know uh, what the logistical barriers are for bundling vaccines and 
you know, it depends on how often you're supposed to get them and the number of doses and those sort of things. But it's exciting to think about um, the potential for bundling different healthcare interventions. Yeah, I think that was a really insightful in thinking about, you know, getting people to think about things differently. And, and that spillover effect, I think, is probably, hopefully, that will happen. I, I know it's been really interesting. I've seen some research that the actual cases of, of influenza, the, the common flu, have gone down uh, with this because of social distancing and washing our hands and some of the other you know, factors that we are currently taking in this. And, and hopefully, some of that will continue on past this uh, crisis as well as we move forward. So, yeah, we're in a very interesting natural experiment where pollution and murder rates are down, but domestic violence is up. So, you know, like all kinds of things are affected by our changes in behavior. Yeah. So, what do you think are the are the good preventive behaviors? We you, uh, Kurt mentioned physical distancing, and uh, you know, uh, uh, what do you think are the things that could really help us out in this particular situation? Well, the key behaviors, as I understand them, are hand washing and other hygiene things like disinfecting surfaces, um, social distancing behaviors, including complying with stay-at-home orders, so drastically limiting the number of times you go out of the house or the number of other people that you come in contact with, uh, and then mask wearing when you are out of the house. Um, and none of those is particularly parallel to vaccination. So it's not at all clear that the same kind of interventions will work. Oh, uh, wow. <laughs> I, I think that that's, that's interesting. T- tell us more about that. Why, why, why are you thinking that? Well, a vaccination is a once and done behavior. I mean, even the flu shot that you have to get every year, like once you have it, like you're set for the rest of the year. Washing hands, you have to do like 30 times a day. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and not leaving your house is, I mean, that's a negative behavior. That's not doing something as opposed to the positive behavior of getting vaccination. And, you know, again, like dozens of times during the day, there's there's a reason that you could leave your house, and then, but then you don't. So it's this very repeated habitual pattern that's different from this once and done vaccination. Yeah, I know for us, I we have to plan our grocery visits now. And before, oh, we're low on milk. I'll just run to the grocery store. Right. I'll grab some milk and whatever else is there. But now it's, wait, okay, if I'm going to go to the store, I want to make sure that I, I limit the number of times that I do that. So let's make sure we have the entire list and sit down and it's, ah, oh, it's a lot of work. <laughs> it, it doesn't seem like it should be a lot of work, but it is a lot of work for something that in the past and the habits that we had before were vastly different from this. Um, I think it's really interesting. And, and obviously the, the, the kind of where we've been trying to focus the podcasts and the series have been around behavioral science in understanding and coping with this. Just in general, how do you think behavioral science uh, can impact how we understand this and how we cope with it? And are there things that you wish um, we were doing better from a behavioral science community? Well, a key interest of mine is what behavioral science has to say about behavior change and systemic Mm -hmm. behavior change. So our current situation is a, you know, a high stakes test venue for that. 
um, uh, we were talking about social norms a few minutes ago. And I think it's interesting to think about the comparison between hand washing and mask wearing. So huh. I really don't have a lot of idea about how often other people are washing their hands or when they're doing it, because you tend to do that in a private bathroom type facility. Yep. Uh, but I have a lot of information about who's wearing masks. So when I go walk my dog around the neighborhood, you know, I can see who's wearing masks and who isn't. Uh, and uh, chatting with a student of mine in New York who reports that like literally everyone in Brooklyn is wearing a mask. I know that here in Pittsburgh, it's like maybe a third or a half of people that are wearing a mask. So, wow. you know, I'm getting very different descriptive social norm information about what other people are doing here in Pittsburgh than the New Yorkers are getting. Yeah. We talked with Christina Bicchieri just a, a while ago, and she was talking about the that same aspect of the the visible component of wearing a mask versus that invisible component right. of washing your hands. And there's that social pressure to conform to that descriptive norm that you're seeing around you. So it's really interesting to, again, as you said, this is one big nat natural experiment. Mm -hmm. And you know, in the, in the end, granted, it's a it's a horrible situation to go through, and it's not something that we would ever want to happen. But I think some of the science that might come out of this will be really informative moving forward, and and hopefully be something that we can then address if another case like this came around, and how we can better uh, influence people to make those positive behavior changes. Maybe not only in this, but in other aspects of of our lives, like you said, vaccination and and other aspects. So. Yeah, that visible aspect of the social norm has been tried in other contexts as well, including vaccination. There have been some studies where healthcare workers wear a badge after they've been vaccinated, saying, "You know, I've been I've I've vaccinated to protect you, the patient." Um, so making you know, normally vaccination is not that visible either, but you know, yeah. the sticker or the badge afterwards, then you can make it visible, and then the the risk is that if only a few people are wearing the badges, what you learn is that hardly anyone is vaccinating. Just like, you know, when I walk around Pittsburgh and I see not that many people wearing masks, I'm learning that this is not really a prevalent norm. Yeah. So the descriptive aspect of it becomes larger than the, the normative mm -hmm. aspect of, of mm -hmm. what you're doing. So, all right. I, I was telling Kurt yesterday that over the weekend when my wife and I were doing our shopping, we went to Costco and uh, first and saw maybe 25% of the people wearing masks. And then we went to a local grocery store directly from that and saw 85% of the people wearing masks. And And talk about these mixed social norms. This is very... Ah, we went from one part of town with, you know, one sort of social group of people to another part of town with a different group of, of people and saw a very, very different. Again, this is an N of one. This is a very small and anecdotal experience, but but it really surprised us. And uh, we also both commented how we felt so much better being in the local grocery store, seeing 85 percent of the people with masks on because because we were and we felt more. Ah, we're at home. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. And you, and you can also think about how your behavior slightly influences the norm. So if only 25% of people are wearing masks, but you're wearing a mask, well, you know, you're, you're helping to create that visibility. Maybe you'll shift uh, a few more people and eventually the tide will turn and it'll become the majority. Yeah. It's really interesting how this is playing out. And to Tim's point, even the microcosms within, you talked about Pittsburgh and New York, and this idea of even within a city, certain neighborhoods, um, 
you know, social groups uh, within those neighborhoods may have a different uh, response than others outside of it. So that that whole aspect of our you know reference group and who are we looking to in order to to do those social norms, which I would have to think may have some correlation to some of the vaccine work that you've done. Like are people in certain different social economics, you know, statuses, do they get vaccines in different rates than others? I, you know, I don't know if that's that's any of your research at all or any insight on that. Hmm, what do we know about demographics affecting vaccination rates? I mean, certainly age, uh, but that, I mean, that's a risk factor thing. I'm not sure that that's a social norm thing, but it could be hard to disentangle them, right? If everyone else yeah. in the environment community is getting the flu shot because we're all high risk, then uh, that could. That's what we do when you get to be 65. It's all of a sudden now you start doing that because that's what other 65-year-olds do right. or whatever that age is uh, that you that you have that take place. Well, you've done some work uh, also. I was kind of fascinated with some of the work you did with game theory. Mm. Right? You know, And do you think that there's a place for game theory and what we're going through right now? Oh, for sure. I mean, this is one big public goods game. <laughs> yeah, we laugh, but okay. you're, we laugh because it's true. It really true, is true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's this, a number of places in the literature, people have pointed this out. There's this sort of interplay between the game theoretic concepts of free riding on other people's preventive behavior versus sort of norm following. So if everyone else is doing a great job of preventing the spread of COVID, then I could say like, oh, well, I can free ride on that. I mean, now, now the risk of infection is low, so I can go out without my mask and um, go shopping at wherever's open, et cetera. Um, on the other hand, like maybe psychologically, even though in a, in a sort of normative game theory sense, that is what I should do. Psychologically, what I'm going to see is that everyone else is doing these things. They're all staying home. So I want to fit in with the group. So I do that as well. Yeah. <laughs> Again, uh, one big natural experiment that's going on here. So how do you think it's going to come out? What, what do you think might emerge from this, Gretchen, as we look into the future? We're a year uh, from now, two years from now. What kind of, going back to Kurt's crystal ball, what kind of crystal ball do you have for how our behaviors might change in the future? Yeah, that is a really interesting question. It seems really unlikely that we're just going to go back to normal, even when the disease risk is low. Uh, I was... Oh, I went for a bike ride because we're still allowed to go for bike rides and walks and stuff. Um, and, and I bike, we have this bike trail and it goes to a mall that has this river walk. So I, and, but anyway, because I was going by the, the mall, um, there's a movie theater there. And I remembered like the last time I was at that movie theater, I was like dropping off my son and some of his friends for a movie. And I, and I waited in the lobby, like to make sure that they all got connected up. And then thinking back on that, I thought, Oh my gosh, how could I have done such a risky behavior of going into the <laughs> It just seems insane that I would ever have taken that risk, you know, before it was like months before. Um, so, yeah, yeah, right. So, all of these behaviors that we now know to be risky in the current circumstance, are we going to be able to comfortably go back to them or are they going to always seem like high risk behaviors to us? Do you, and do you think when so? 
So when a vaccine is developed for COVID-19, I, I think there's a pre-vaccine behavior risk perception and then a post-vaccine risk behavior perception. And I'm I'm wondering again to that point of dropping your son off at a at a movie, you know, even going to a movie, right? That's why would you do that? I'm sitting right next to people I don't know. They could be coughing on me and I'm gonna get sick. But post post-vaccine, do I really care anymore? Um and and again, I know all vaccines, they're they're usually not a hundred percent in in some of their uh, preventative measures. And so does that have some play? I mean, any thoughts on that from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, for sure, when we talk about perceived risk of a disease with respect to vaccination, it's important to ask people about both halves. So like how likely are you to get infected if you don't get vaccinated? How likely are you if you do get vaccinated? Uh, and the people that show a big difference between those two questions, those are normally the people that are getting vaccinated. <laughs> um, yeah. So Big Delta. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you're also completely uh, correct that uh, once we have the vaccine, we're going to be on, you know, the with vaccination side of that. Um, and, no vaccine is perfectly effective, but many of them are very effective. And if we get the benefits of herd immunity because we have large vaccine uptake, then you know we're going to be really safe. Um, so, but I think an interesting psychological question is the ways in which our behavior is guided by things other than just our cognition. So, if I rationally know, you know, we've got vaccination rates at ninety-five percent, and the vaccine is really effective, and so the risk of contagion is now very low, am I still going to have that kind of precognitive emotional reaction to these behaviors that we weren't supposed to be doing during shelter in place? Yeah, that visceral reaction of, like you said, it's it was, you know, how could I do something so dangerous? Yet it was months before any of this happened when you talked about dropping off your kids. I also wonder if there's going to be, again, for large group Elements like sporting events, musical concerts, theater, those aspects. Is there going to be a large pent-up demand that overweighs even some of our, you know, cognitive aspects of this? Um, if they're still, be, if even if they take away shelter in place and they allow some of these things to happen pre-vaccine how much that outweighs that visceral response that we have now, as well as some cognitive aspects. And I don't know if there's an answer to that, but it, it'll be interesting to see as this whole thing plays out, what our behaviors will be and what will stick and what won't stick as, as a result of this. So, yeah, that's interesting. And it's, it's hard to know what a, high demand for concerts would be like, think about something like haircuts. Once yeah. stay at home orders are listed, like literally everyone needs a haircut. So of course the hair salon. Except uh, for me. So <laughs> the bald man here, he cuts my own hair. So that, but, but I granted the right. vast majority of people so will definitely need a haircut. Demand for hair salons. Uh, and then it's, you know, once everyone has gotten their haircut and they're back to their like every six week schedule or whatever it is, then it's going to even out. So that's not like there's an easy explanation for why there's a big run on hair salons right after the stay at home orders are, are, are lifted because everybody needs that. So if we have the same run on concert venues right afterwards, like, should we think about that the same way? I mean, 
Concerts aren't something that you need every six weeks. They're just something you enjoy whenever they're available. Um, but maybe it's not, maybe we don't need any special psychology to explain why there's an immediate run on, you know, bars, concerts, yeah. uh, theme parks, other entertainment things that we weren't allowed to go to. Like just all of the, all of the missed uh, vacations, even all of the missed entertainments are now just being pushed to their first opportunity. We're social creatures and we have that social need to bond and, and get together for vast majority of us. And yes, it's fantastic that we have the technology that we are able to have face-to-face -face contact over a computer with, with people. And, and to have that, as we've talked about many times on this, very different, this would have been a very different pandemic stay-at-home type experience 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 30 years ago, without the the technology that we have. But I still think there's a craving that we probably have for that real face-to-face -face connections that we're missing. So yeah, I, it'll be interesting because you said it's, it's, it is a interesting piece of thinking, yes, I need to get a haircut. That That's something that unless I'm totally changing my look to some crazy wild look, which most people are not going to do, versus I don't need to go to the Timberwolves you know, basketball game. I don't, I can watch that on television. I don't need to do that. Yet there's something about being in a live venue with all of that, that I'm craving, I'm missing. At least this is, you know, this is my little piece uh, of the, of the picture. Um, and I don't think there's an answer at this point as to <laughs> what is going to happen or not going to happen as a result of this, but it'll be interesting to watch. Yeah. Well, kind of getting back to vaccines, Wendy Wood said that this massive experience could be a catastrophic fresh start. It could give us the opportunity to create new things. Do you think, or to what degree do you think that this global crisis could impact the way that we look at healthcare, the way that we look at vaccinations, for instance? Hmm. Yeah, I can see that suggestion. I like that, a kind of like rebranding of vaccines. So vaccines are what brought us out of COVID-19. <laughs> Um, so, uh, you know, that's how we think about them. And, you know, as long as you're getting your COVID-19 vaccine, can we interest you in these 29 other vaccines that we've had? <laughs> Just 28 more shots. That's all. <laughs> spaced out. You don't have to get them more than before. <laughs> I think that that's a first. I don't think anyone, Gretchen, has offered up the idea of rebranding COVID-19 <laughs> vaccinations. That's pretty great. Okay. I mean, to be clear, the vaccination rate for almost all vaccines in this country are very high and stable. Um, I mean, maybe they're at like 92% when they should be at 95%, something like that, but you know, they're high. It's the flu and HPV vaccine. Those are the ones that are yeah. low. So if anyone's going to be riding on the coattails of the COVID vaccine, it should be those two. Well, Gretchen, I think with that, thank you for, for your insights. This has been really interesting. And I think there's some real interesting nuances that you brought up that I I know I was very fascinated with and I hope our listeners were fascinated with as well. So thank you for sharing your insights. Oh, you. I was delighted to talk with you. 
Welcome to the special edition of our grooving session where Tim and I groove on some of the ideas and concepts that were inspired by our conversation with Gretchen Chapman. Woo-hoo. Yeah, that was, it was so fun to talk to her. I have to admit that it, what about a year and a half ago when we were out at CMU, I was just thinking that I really missed uh, that she was not there. Yeah, you know, we, I mean, we talked to George and Linda and Sarab and you know, God, you know, the, the whole crew, and it was she was notably absent for me because I've been a big fan of her research for a long time. Well, she is you know, an expert in vac- the psychology of vaccinations. She's, I mean, she's it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's and, and to think about that in this time and her taking time out of her day to, to talk with us. I'm just very, very appreciative of that. It was that. pretty cool. And speaking of which, maybe we should just quickly recap the three categories of the, the vaccine decision-making. Would that, would that be fair? Yeah, yeah, go for it. So she first talked about the beliefs and feelings uh, ap- approach, you know, trying to get people to change their feelings or beliefs around it, which hasn't been very effective for people who are really deeply entrenched, right? Mm-hmm. And then the second part was the social factors, and which was really fun to hear about because we've spent so much time on social norms with with people like Christina Bicchieri and Oregon DeMont. Um but she didn't have a lot of data on it. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds yeah. like it's an emerging field. And then the third part, which was really interesting, was this whole idea of intervening on behavior directly, which sounded like nudges, basically, yeah. right? Right. I mean, that that this idea of the reminders and physician recommendations and the pre-scheduled appointments. I thought there's lots of wonderful things that we can do to get people to to get vaccinated, especially those who are sort of not objecting to it, but just not really taking time to actually make it happen. Well, and you wonder why people aren't getting their, their in, uh, vaccinations. And again, there's some that are opposed to it, but I think the vast mm-hmm. majority is there's friction. There's friction involved. It takes I time. Forget. It takes time. It's mm-hmm. effort. And the more that you can do to reduce that friction, to have those nudges in place, the, the more likely it's going to happen. And research obviously backs that up. That's nice. Yeah, I, I think I think it is terrific. Um, one of the main things that I wanted to talk about, Kurt, was the question that you asked of Gretchen. I thought it was just really so clever and, and so well articulated about will vaccination rates remain status quo or increase because of COVID-19? And I thought her answer was was pretty terrific when she said that uh, that the perfect situation, this is the perfect situation for people to be very enthusiastic for COVID vaccinations, right? That we, that's like, it's kind of like, it could be a perfect storm, but we don't, but we really don't know because we're so far away from actually having a vaccination. Right. And this idea that that vaccination for COVID-19 then transfers into increased vaccinations for influenza and other factors that go right potentially having some spillover effect i think is really cool Uh, you know good good stuff right 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 we could we could really be on the edge of bringing that one third of the of the u.s population higher by having a successful covid uh vaccination at some point in time well and i also think there's some understanding of the value of vaccinations that maybe influence some of those beliefs and feelings from that first part. The idea that the way that the disease gets transferred, 
the idea that we pass it on to others and so that this vaccination isn't necessarily to keep us safe as much as it is to keep others safe. Again, right, right. most of the people that die from influenza, that the, the common flu are, are young children and older people. So you and I get it. We're probably going to survive pretty good. But right. the fact that we could then pass that on to others who may not have the immune system, the ability to to withhold or withstand the disease, maybe some of that will get transferred because there's been so much emphasis on COVID-19 and the information that is being presented here that hopefully that changes some belief systems uh, and some of the feelings around this as well. Yeah. I was impressed though that Gretchen just has this big question mark. Like we're just going to have to see, we're just going to have to see the data. Let's see what happens. Right. And I love it when scientists say that. I love it when researchers say, we don't know. We just don't know. And it's okay to not know. Right. That's science. This (laughs) is what science is. This is the piece that I get really mad about when people go, well, it's, it's a, I get mad when people make assumptions about things and they they go oh this is the way it is when they don't have the the data to back it up although we do that sometimes right but hopefully we're expressing it as opinions and not as fact it's right? the human condition this is what we do yeah but the second piece that that gets me upset is when we change our beliefs or our information because we have found new information because we've done tests. And so, you know, at the beginning of this, it was don't wear masks because we need those masks for others. And and the impact that wearing a mask has on your own safety is negligible. And then it changed because we realized, well, wearing a mask isn't necessarily about keeping us safe. It's about keeping others others safe and how much that can actually decrease the transmission of this disease across. And people go, see, they said it wasn't important there. And now they're saying it's important now. You know, it's, it's, you can't trust science. And I go, no, that's actually what science does is they, they, they look at things very cynically and looking at the latest and greatest evidence. And then they change their beliefs based upon the newest evidence. And they're not stuck in status quo. You adapt and you adjust because of the information and the newest and greatest information. And it helps in making the best decisions possible given what we know. And we are always at a lack of full knowledge. So we just should use the best knowledge available which is what we're we're trying to do with science. Yeah, it's a great reminder that we are never at full knowledge. <laughs> you know, that there's always something more to learn. Um, what did you think about this idea of uh, healthcare workers wearing badges? Again, it goes back to some of this idea that we talked about with. Uh, I don't remember if it was Christina Bicchieri or Eugen Dumont, but the idea that, yeah socially, you know, it's a visible thing, but then you get this potential backlash because, wow, not look at all the people that aren't vaccinated, right? you know, that don't have a badge. That aren't wearing the badge, right. That aren't wearing a badge. And so all of a sudden it's a descriptive norm as opposed to a normative norm where you're going, oh, well, maybe I'm not, I shouldn't get vaccinated because there's a lot of people here not wearing badges. Um, yeah, I feel that way sometimes on voting days 
when I'm surprised at the small number of people that I see not wearing, uh, I, I just voted a little sticker. Now it's, it's not mandatory. It's, you know, totally voluntary. And of course not everybody votes on voting day. There's lots of early voting uh, ways to do that, but it is interesting how it does sort of reinforce like, really, do they care? Yeah. Are they, re- are they really serious about this? That's, well, and that's something I like about masks is the mask sends this big signal that I care. I care about others. There's a greater good story in that. It's not so much about me wearing the mask is about other people. And mm-hmm. I really like being in places and feel more comfortable in places where more people are wearing masks, even though I'm wearing one. We're inferring uh, people's intentions and their belief systems from some of the outward components of this. Yeah. Again, wearing a mask, I will infer some things about you as a person because you are or you are not wearing a mask. And the same thing for people who aren't wearing a mask, who are looking at us and inferring certain things about us because we are wearing a mask. And those are messages that we're signaling to others. And I think it's a really interesting case uh, in how what we believe and some of the outward things, it's like gang members wearing gang colors. You know, you're part of my gang. If you're wearing a mask, you're not part of my gang. If you're not, if you wear vaccination, I got vaccinated sign. You're part of my gang. I don't know. I think it's important. It also reminds me of something that I thought was just fabulous. It was a great reminder that I felt like had slipped away from me when she said that, our individual behavior slightly influences the social norms. It's everything that we do. We literally are impacting others. We're not just being impacted by others. We are impacting others. And I personally forget about this and was so glad to be reminded of it when she, when she brought that up. It's so important, for, I think, for us to, re, to keep in mind that the way that we behave is, could have a positive influence or negative influence, I suppose, on other people. Well, you go back and you talk about wearing masks and you can feel silly about wearing a mask when the vast majority of other people around you are not wearing a mask. Yeah. But you are sending a signal and you're impacting that social norm. At least there's one. I go back to all of the uh, Solomon Ash studies of the the line and people being yes. co-conspirators in, in that where three lines, one is definitely longer than the other. And they're going around the room saying, which is longer. And if you have all of these people in the room saying that A is longer when it definitely isn't you get to the eighth person who's not part who's actually the, the you know the person who's being studied uh you know and there's 60 70 80 percent of the time i can't remember the exact number they will go along with the group um however if you have one other person one other person in there that says no it's not line a it's line c then that falls to almost zero. That person yeah. at the at the end uh, now feels it's okay. Yep, you know, yes. Yeah, six of you said that the line it was line A. One person said it was line C. Well, I think it's line C too. And I think one of us wearing a mask or doing whatever those positive social norms would be can help influence that overall social norm. And so, damn it, people, get out there, wear that mask. I don't care if you're the only person doing it. 
It's the things that we need to be doing. Make sure that you call out people when they're talking conspiracy theories on your social media norms. Don't just sit by being silent. You know, we need to do this because we are part of the solution. All of us are part of the solution. And that's what I think, you know, was brought up by Gretchen. And I thought that was great. Yeah, it was terrific. And I think it's okay to uh, to be reminded of the the Ash Conformity studies because they were they were just terrifically done and uh, still replicable today. Yeah. I wanted to end on uh, this discussion about will we eventually go back to what we now consider high-risk behaviors? In other words, what's it like? Do you, I mean, are you are you thinking like are you personally thinking? Oh man, I can't wait to get back to a restaurant or a bar or a coffee shop or or just to you know be up you know or, or you know I mean Katie and I have been to Oktoberfest you know which happens at the end of September in Munich. It's like man, I just think about hordes and hordes of people from all over the world sitting on these long benches right next to each other drinking beer, <laughs> which is so much fun. But I am not longing for that right now. It's interesting because I think it depends, uh, this idea of what is the time horizon that we have. When will the event take place? Is that what you're thinking when of? Is, when are things opening up? What have, what's gone on to, to that point? So am I really wanting to get back and watch a, a NBA game? Yes, I would love to watch an NBA game live and feel that energy and see the action. Will I do that? prior to a vaccination being out there, I, I doubt it. I doubt it a lot. I think there are a number of factors that go into this. So if you ask me, will you go to an NBA, NBA game a year and a half from now? Probably. If there's a vaccination. If there's there. a vaccination. Okay. But what about, what about other you know, Gretchen talked about sort of the difference between things that we do on a regular basis that we need the haircutting thing. Some of us do, not everybody, yeah. but some, some of us do. And I don't understand why people need haircuts. <laughs> don't you just shave it off every every you know week? Come on. But what about the demand for social norms around birthdays, anniversaries, baby showers, weddings? You know, those kinds of social gatherings, which could be small but could be very large. They could be very large. And again, from a social distancing perspective, you're bringing people together who main, you know, one person could be carrying and then you infect everybody else at that birthday party. But there is, there are some social norms around attending. Uh, yeah, yeah. Prior to the virus, it, high demand. This was a right. this was a, a big thing. A birthday party, a bridal shower. Man, if you're invited, you go. Right. You get you get socially ostracized. You have to have a really good reason for not showing up at at your mom's birthday party. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You would get you know that that phone call like, oh, I know, I'm so disappointed that you couldn't make it. You know, and you just feel horrible. And, and will those shaming moments still happen? I think for some people, yes. For other people, they will be very different. I think it's going to be interesting, again, how people respond based upon who, what message they're listening to. Right. right. Are they listening to the experts? Are they listening to pundits? Are they listening to their neighbor down the road, it, it, which goes back to 
we all play a really important part in this and in, we should be establishing the social norm. Yep. We should be establishing the social norms and we should be establishing the social norms based upon the science and what the experts who are doing this. Now, the hard part is, of course, is you get experts disagreeing on things and then you can cherry pick and we have motivated yeah. reasoning to do that. And uh, we have to be wary of our own pieces there. But to that point, it's going to be interesting to watch how this all unfolds. Well, I'm certainly not at a place where I absolutely need my double decaf latte. Let's just put it that way. But what if you had the opportunity to see your artist, that you're one of your favorite artists you've never seen, and you know <laughs> they will never, ever come back here, and you would never get a chance to play or to hear, see them play live? And, and if they were saying, we're going to do this at the Dakota, the, the local jazz club down here, and we're putting in social distancing things inside of this. So we're not sitting as close to each other. So they're doing all these things and we're taking people's temperatures before they come in, not allowing them in if they have a fever and you have, you know, Clorox wipes at, into it and purex all around and everything else that's going and everybody has to wear a mask yes would you go hell okay. yes hell yes <laughs> <laughs> see we all have that point right yes yes because you laid out in in the world of moral dilemmas you just laid out this perfect as far as i'm concerned the the best possible case scenario and i'm like man i'm gonna go <laughs> that sounds pretty <laughs> terrific at the same time if uh, in this in this balance of moral dilemmas, if there were fewer or less appealing uh, or less effective ways, like they say, well, we, we're not going to care about social distancing. We're not going to care about taking your temperature when you come in, or we're not going to really worry about a lot of these other things. Then, then that might be different. I mean, those those things those those consequences uh, factor into my interest. How, how about for you? Do they matter, or are you just waiting for the vaccine? Well, I, I think it, I, all of those matter, right? If you yeah. come to a once in a lifetime piece in various different aspects, but then you have to weigh going, okay, so if I go, then do I then choose to self quarantine for two weeks after? Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't want to spread that disease. And maybe there's a trade off. Do I, is it valuable enough for me? To say, nope, I'm good. Now I am just going to self-quarantine myself for two weeks uh, after this, and and I will pay that price. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, but again, you know, I know human nature, and I'm going, but I feel good. I don't have a temperature. I'm going fine. Why would I? Cold state versus hot state of being in quarantine versus what I think life would be in quarantine. Yeah. Ugh. Always moral dilemmas. Always these hard questions. You ask hard questions. So if you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with someone. Uh, give us a quick rating. Give us a review. We really benefit from them in ways that are much bigger than you can imagine. Because You they- are impacting the social norm around <laughs> behavioral groups. <laughs> Think part. about that. You tell two people. They tell two people. You are spreading the virus of behavioral groups. <laughs> That's a crazy idea. Oh, Um, my gosh. But we are always grateful. And uh, so thanks for listening. And uh, we hope you have a good day. 
Thank you for listening to the special episode of Behavior Grooves. We hope that you found it interesting and insightful. If you liked it, please let others know. We think that the topic is important and maybe we can help in educating people about how behavioral science can help us all out in this current craziness that we are going through. Also, please let us know if you have any thoughts or ideas that would be helpful or that we could share. You can reach us through the Connect tab on the Behavioral Grooves website at www.behavioralgrooves.com or through Twitter. I'm at T. Houlihan and Kurt is at What Motivates. We really do love hearing from you. And this topic is one that spurs lots of emotions and thought. As part of our mission, we want to expand and inform the community of people who think about positively applying behavioral science to life. One way that happens is through leaving reviews. If you think this podcast is beneficial and should grow, we would really appreciate to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast server you use. It only takes a few minutes and goes a long way to boost us in the algorithms that are used to generate search results. Also, please check out the show notes. We are linking to a number of resources articles, podcasts, newsletters that we vetted to bring good facts and ideas around COVID-19 and the coronavirus, its impact and ways that we can help slow down the spread. There is a lot of information that's being pushed out to everyone each day, and we are weeding through it to find good stuff so that you don't have to. We truly appreciate you listening. Now go out and wash your hands. 